The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by the spin-off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Software development and remote working for high-performance teams and companies are huge areas of growth. With COVID, the trends for distributed teams and the tools they need have both taken off. But like lots in tech... Not evenly. There's a lot of software to help measure what developers produce. But there isn't a lot of software to analyse the quality of the communication, culture and feedback teams receive. That was the insight that led today's guest to start Multitudes, a company to help measure the cultural performance so what gets measured gets managed and can be improved. Lauren Pete is the founder and CEO and came up with the idea while running Ally Skills NZ, a diversity, equity and inclusion consultancy for tech companies. She's worked in and with startups in the Middle East and is a management consultant with Bain & Co in San Francisco. She received a degree in economics from Stanford and this background and knowledge of the problem attracted some amazing investors. The former CEO of Reddit, a founder of CultureAmp and Blackbird VC are all behind the team. To talk the journey, how people can be good allies, and what Multitudes is here to do. Lauren Pete joins us now. Kia ora, thank you for being here. Kia ora, thanks for having me. Hey, so first up, um, take us back to that, that kind of earlier career and study. Um, it always kind of like lights up and is, is really cool to see someone's been to Stanford, as it's such a storied place. What, what was it like and, and how was that? Yeah. Um, well, I think probably the first thing to know is that I went in, like many Stanford students, with a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, and and I think many of us, kind of that day one, we were, you know, at the opening ceremonies and, and asking ourselves, did they make a mistake? You know, was I the one that, that they accidentally let in and they shouldn't have? Um, so, yeah, it was a real transition. I, I definitely went from being not a big fish, but a bigger fish in a smaller pond to being a small fish in a big pond. And um, again, like many other Stanford students, I'd gotten really good grades before. I prided myself on being a straight A student and then got to Stanford and got my first F. And, you know, and it, it, there was a lot of processing that I had to do around, okay, well, what's my value? And, um, you know, what what really makes me a, a valuable, worthy human in the world? And it's clearly not grades. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, it should be more than grades, really. Um, so that was one big part of it, um, just the, the humility. Um, but the other big part of it, too, was learning, realizing that I learned so much more from the ad hoc conversations in my dorm with my peers than I did in, in the classroom. And I really value what I learned in the classroom, and I can speak to that. That, that was important. 
Um, but in terms of my own growth and development as a person, it was conversations around, you know, when we were brushing our teeth in the bathroom or getting a meal in the dining hall um, that I think really did the most to shape the type of person that I've become since then. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. As with so many of these places, like great companies to work at or schools to go to or, you, you know, institutions to be part of, it is that network and also maybe is it partly then the belief that you can achieve at that top level? You know, does the imposter syndrome kind of get knocked back a couple of steps by going through something that, like that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really true. And it's, I think there's also a degree to which it's realising that at the end of the day, everyone's human. So, um at one of the opening ceremonies, there was a talk by Larry Page and Sergey Brin, so the co-founders of Google. Um, I'll confess, actually, I didn't know much about tech then, so I kind of showed up at the talk and was like, oh, yeah, that Google thing, I've heard of it. And But anyway, now I realize what a big deal it was to have them speak. Um, but, you know, to have them on a stage in front of us, and they're just people. They're just people. We're all just people. It makes it a little bit less far away, and it certainly does make some of the big things feel achievable, because if they're just people and they did it, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a person, we're just people, so why can't we do it too? Yeah, that's so cool. And Stanford is kind of famous um, now for being famous in many ways. But, you know, like, it's, it was such a pioneer in blending applied science and research and companies and had a really open, you know, the reason it became like it did is because it was so open to working with uh, letting students become entrepreneurs and working with recent graduates to kind of create this blend of um, research and commerce that's been so influential around the world, hey? Yeah. And the other thing I'll say about Stanford, too, given that um, I went on to start a diversity, equity and inclusion company, is that before any of the Ivy institutions um, in the state, so Harvard or Yale, before they allowed women in, Stanford was doing it. And so Stanford really pioneered the way in saying, look, you know, we should have women in our programs as much as men um, before the other universities got there, too. <laughs> Which, you yeah, know, it's not that long ago, really, in the scheme of things either, right? Eh? No, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, wild. And then out of there, um, you know, a, a, a bunch of interesting kind of work through startups and, um, you know, advising them and being in them. And also working for Bain & Co., which is one of these management consultant groups that also has a really kind of storied name, like with McKinsey or, you, you know, these kind of, uh, you know, what what's it like working in, you know, a pretty hardcore consultancy group? And what were you up to? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say is that it was always hard to explain to friends what exactly I did in my job. Um, and there's good reason for that, because what you do as a consultant is so varied and really depends on the projects that happen to be coming through, but also very much on the person and what they're interested in. So, um, yeah, I mean, my favorite parts of being at Bain were, again, you're going to see this theme, it was the people that I got to work with. It was being on teams of people that were incredibly intelligent, intelligent, very motivated, um, and also good people. That was something that drew me to Bain was that there was this real sense of care and camaraderie between the people on the team. Um, so yeah, I really valued that. In terms of the day-to-day -day work, it was a mix of things. Uh, it was spending time in financial models and figuring out if a new business line was likely to be profitable or doing market research. Um, that it was a real hodgepodge. I think the the project that I enjoyed was the one time I wasn't on a tech case, and I got to, or one of the few times I wasn't on a tech case, and we were working with a restaurant chain in the U.S. and doing some market research, and 
we needed um we needed collages of the, where the restaurant look and feel was going and so i got to spend a whole day just cutting out pictures and gluing them onto collages and no one else at in the company could believe that that was actually what i got to do for the day so yeah it was a great mix of things <laughs> and what how was it that you came to be uh in new zealand and what led you to do ally skills nz as a company yeah so uh the 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 quick connection is that between being in San Francisco and then coming to New Zealand, I worked in the Middle East with startups. And that was actually when I got involved in startups. So I always look back and laugh at the irony now that when I was in San Francisco, I worked with tech companies, but I was working with big tech companies. And then I left the Valley and started working with startups. Um, and anyway, along the way, I met my now husband, who's a Kiwi. And so that's the very short version of how I ended up in New Zealand. <laughs> cool. And what was the what was the idea behind Ally Skills and how did you go about starting that? Yeah, it really started as a personal passion. So I had worked in all these teams around the world, um, both in San Francisco, but also across the Middle East. And I had seen just how different teams could be that some teams it just seemed like it clicked and it was working smoothly and everyone was giving it their all and and I could see how much those teams were able to achieve and then there were other teams where it you know we were just constantly grinding and there were all these tensions and when I thought about it it wasn't just it wasn't that the people were vastly different. It was something about how the teams came together. And to be really frank, one of the things that I'd seen over and over was people from marginalized backgrounds, um, just their their talents not being seen or not really being fully appreciated by others on the team. And so that was something that had frustrated me for a long time. And I, in my personal life, had been reading a lot about the social justice movements and equity and inclusion and just doing my own learning and upskilling. Um, so that had been growing for a while. And then I also had had a few experiences in organizations where I'd been pushing them to think about this more. So, for example, in a recruiting process saying we need to think about how we make this less biased, how we make it more fair and equal for different groups of people coming through and had seen the challenges of, of being sometimes, oftentimes, the, the only voice who is really pushing for that work and how exhausting it could be to do it from the inside. And so um, Ally Skills, it really was bringing all of that together and saying, okay, well, one, I really, this work is so important. I want to be talking about it more. And, and to be honest, it's a good excuse for my own continued learning in this space, but also feeling a real empathy for those voices inside organizations who are working so hard and not getting support and wanting to, to be able to come and give them some encouragement and, and be an extra boost on, on the slog that they're going through. Yeah, let's chat about that kind of like the bias that you mentioned there that organisations don't even know they have, which it's been really cool over the last kind of five years to see this, this go from quite a kind of fringe idea that people who thought they were well-meaning and weren't carrying around a bunch of biases and how they hired and how they built teams and how they built companies and thought they were running meritocracies. <laughs> um, it's gone from being an idea that really challenged a few people to now having real kind of understanding and acceptance. Um, talk us through that kind of that kind of journey and what what's um, yeah like how is it that people who think that they're, they're doing a good job don't even know what they're missing? Yeah uh, so there's a couple uh, there's a couple ways to, to think about this and one is um, 
we do have bias. The human brain has bias. You know, we could talk about kind of the the evolutionary reasons for it. Um, and the the result of that, though, is that we have learned these double standards for different groups of people and how we treat them. And I can dive into some specific examples, but that's the key takeaway there. The, the key thing, though, that I think is important to add in these conversations about bias is why we ended up here specifically when it comes to groups of people. So, um, you know, we know that, for example, this idea of race, it's, it's a construct. It was something that made up humans within these races that we talk about. There's, there's more variation than across them. This is something that's, that's well documented. So it's something that we've constructed, but it's become this reality because, because of the way that our institutions are set up, because of who they preference and privilege. And so the, for me, the, I think the harder piece for people to talk about, but really the more important side, if we want to get to the root of the problem, is to acknowledge that we've inherited institutions and structures that are set up to, to preference and privilege certain groups over others. And it's then by being humans who are living in these systems that, that still are not as equal as they should be, um, that's where the bias comes from. We have to, we kind of learn this from the world around us. And I, we mentioned, um, we spoke a bit about imposter syndrome earlier. And, you know, people of any background can come, can have imposter syndrome. But there is some indication that, for example, women are more likely to have it than men. And, and if you think about a world where, and, you know, I can talk about some of the biases, but women, for example, they're much more likely to be judged on whether or not they've already done the thing multiple times and, and really well. And this is particularly true for women of color, whereas men, and in particular white and Pakeha men, are more likely to be judged on this idea of potential. We can see that that, that would lead to a difference in confidence levels, where if someone's already done the thing well and people are saying, no, no, you need to show me again, so this is called prove it again bias, um, that would take a hit on your confidence if it happened over and over. And if you were someone who people perpetually said, yeah, you can do it. You, sure, you've never done it before, but you'll be great. Of course, you would have a higher level of confidence. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's this real interchange of these systems around us, but then they get inside our heads and they impact how we see each other and sometimes how we see ourselves. Wow, and that that idea of, you know, you start at a base position of like, prove it as opposed to you can do it. Those are things that people don't know that they are bringing into things like scanning names on CVs or interviewing people. How do you go about helping companies to realise it's happening and to put in you know, systems, because it takes systems, doesn't it, to kind of overcome things that are um, carried around internally um, to do it. Because I imagine the kind of people that would hire something called Ally Skills NZ are probably already on the path to wanting to be better. But still to come in and say, hey, it turns out you're walking around with all of these terrible biases. Boy, we'd better help you. Like people could get defensive. And if people get defensive, they stop being on the journey to getting better, don't they? Like how do you go about kind of, you know, uh, introducing this in a way that it sticks? Yeah, yeah. So um, you've touched on so many things there. I'm going to see if I can yeah. <laughs> sort of come back on all of them. There's yeah. kind of the, 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 a typical, the... There's a typical Simon question that isn't a question. Like, <laughs> hey, unpick these four statements. <laughs> um, but but, there, no, but there's so many great things to dive yeah. deeper into. So I'm going to, I'm making a few notes because I want to make sure I, I come back to them. So I think the first thing to talk about is um, the theory of change behind Ally Skills NZ. And, you know, theory of change, it's a big, 
fancy phrase we like to throw around, but really it's saying, hey, if we want to create an impact in the world, let's spend some time thinking about how we think we're going to go from what we do in the day-to-day to the impact we want to see. And, you know, ideally we would have some link that says, yeah, we think this is likely to, to lead to this good thing. So the theory of change for Ally Skills NZ is is to start with the people who are already motivated, who, for whatever reason, you know, it might be um, experiences they've had, it might be things they've seen with friends, it might just, it might be, sometimes, for some people, it's a book they read, um, Sapiens, for a few people, Mm -hmm. did it, and got them thinking about, look, the way that humans interact, it's not genetic, it's been been shaped by our worlds, there's all sorts of pathways in. But start with the people who who are on board, who want to do something, and then they're actually the ones who are most likely to convince the people around them. And I've seen this over and over. You can hire some expert, some person to come in, but for these types of issues that relate to our day-to-day, that feel really personal, the best place for change is with the people we already trust and respect. Um, and so it's by working with those those allies or accomplices, you know, we've got different ways of thinking about it, but it's by starting with those people and then giving them some more skills and tools to go out and talk to others that that's where I think we get the most meaningful change. It is slow change, but it is the most meaningful. And I've seen this. There's been a few key people in my life where I've seen some massive shifts that um, took time, but also shifts that I would have never thought were possible at the very beginning. So that's at a very human level, how we get those ripple effects. And the last thing I'll say on that, which goes back to that defensiveness, is part of why I think the human-to-human change is so important on this is because this is really uncomfortable work. Talking about privilege, talking about racism, talking about sexism, I don't think there's any person who hears those and doesn't tense up to some degree. Um, And when you're someone like me, for example, who has immense privileges— it's very easy to face this and feel a lot of guilt and shame, um, which, by the way, I'll just say the guilt and shame is a sign that you also would like to live in an equal world, that you don't feel good about this world being unequal. Um, and, and um, you know, of course, on the other side, for people who've experienced oppression, there's real hurt and trauma. And, and so this is why I think the human-to-human piece, we need... We can't face these big things without the support of friends. We need to have community around us to do this work because it's such big work. So that's that's kind of this, the human side. And then you also pointed out a really good piece of, okay, well, but we also need to change these systems in, in our organizations. And... Um, and there's a, there's a few key pieces to that. So the awareness piece you pointed out is what we always say, whether you're an organization and thinking about how to shift that or a person. Um, it's the way that the stuff persists, for, particularly for those of us coming from positions of privilege and influence, is that we have whole systems set up to let it stay invisible. And so just the act of noticing and saying, actually, yeah, okay, this is working. It's working fine for me, but I can see how it's failing all sorts of other people in the world. Um, that's, it, it's, I think it's more powerful than we give it credit for. Um, and it also, it requires a lot of unlearning and, um, and listening to, to other groups and their experiences. So that's that first one. And then there is the piece of us as individuals, which I spoke about, but then also the systemic side, it's saying, I think the, the foundational thing there is saying we are biased and we do come from these unequal systems. And so let's design all of our processes, be it hiring, be it promotions, be it 
even who's going to get a step-up opportunity in the day-to-day, because that has a big impact, and we know there's big imbalances there. Let's design all of that by acknowledging that we're flawed humans, that we have biases. And that is what the research shows us is the best way to get to better outcomes. Instead of what you alluded to, uh, saying, oh, well, it's already a meritocracy, we're already doing great. It turns out that's actually the best way to set yourself up for failure. Yeah, uh, and it's so cool to see, um, you know, a lot of these themes, like I was lucky enough to work at a place um, called Venn that I know that your company has worked with, uh, where a lot of the stuff was, you know, like no, no, no place is ever, um, you, you know, an absolute example of the best way to do anything. But a lot of these things were things we thought about and, and worked on um, a lot and by having people like, you know, you come in and talk to us. Um, but with... with um, the wider business community, it's really cool to see some of these themes that we've been talking about for, for a number of years hit wider consciousness, like with um, Noise, the new book by Danny Kahneman and the two um, other academics. You know, it's so cool to see, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff around how you have to build systems in to stop the collection of biases that we all are walking around without even knowing it um, to kind of help over overcome them. Yeah, yeah. I, um, it's really encouraging for me, and I'm really hopeful about where we're going, while acknowledging there's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> and with, with that culture piece, which is a real link to multitudes, which which we'll jump to in a second, like just to kind of just to tease that out for a second, like one of the most interesting conversations um, that that I've had about it was with Sasha Judd, who came on the podcast and shared a speech that she did at a, a developer, you know, internet conference that then she's uh, done a few other times, and that was really cool because it was. Talking about how uh, you know inclusion isn't just about you know stopping shutting people out. It's actually about actively making room for people to be themselves in environments. So you don't have to come in and meet the in jokes and the cultural references and all of the standards of the existing group. And I was like, well, that's you know that that sounds like a very dry description, Simon. But the way that she brought it to life was by saying, you know, the way that um, young woman who might love One Direction and they might love fanfic for um, books, if they're still doing that at 30, they're told that they're infantile and that, you know, they're, they're made, you know, to feel very unwelcome in spaces like tech companies. But if boys who loved soccer and Star Wars are still into that at 30, it's still the kind of general cultural setting at there's Lego like spacewalkers and stuff around, you know, and it's kind of okay for boys to not have grown out of these things, but girls are kind of treated like they're very little, you know, silly things or something. And that was bringing, that brought it so to life because I could see a thousand guys in hoodies with a with a Star Wars figure beside their desk. And so just like thinking about that in, in those different ways. And yeah, if anyone hasn't seen her speech, which I've done a terrible job of um, of, of trying to explain there, um, yeah, go, go and find it because it really brought that to life for me. Yeah, I've seen her give that talk. I think it was at Creative Mornings, and it same thing. I had a real light bulb moment too of of realizing, wow, yeah, I have some internalized sexism and in how I've judged girls for for what they like, you know, and and then had some unpacking to do around that. So yeah, really, really love loved um, love her work and 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 loved that talk. Yeah, so cool. Hey, and then yeah, tell me how out of ally skills, which kind of is like as a business, it's a consultancy that goes in and helps companies, and so you know, it's a pretty kind of like time in, cash out kind of business. How did that then lead to the seeds of what became Multitudes, which is much more of a scalable tech product, world of venture, be able to make impact, less kind of one to one and more one to many. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I will confess that while I was doing ally skills, I was asking myself quite often, how can how can I scale this? How can I scale the impact that that I hope to contribute to in the world? And um, so that so that was a real question that I was asking myself. Um, and then the the beginnings of multitudes, it came from challenges that we were facing in doing this this people work. Um, and we were mostly working with tech companies, so you know loved working with them. It was, it was um, great working with the team there. Um, and so one of the things that we were always trying to do better is understand the impact that we were having. So when we went in and we did a workshop or we did a consulting project. What changed at the end of the day? And specifically, what changed for the people who are in the day-to-day on the teams? Because that's where we most want to see the impact. It's, you know, not kind of the – I think it's very easy – it's not very easy, but it's easier to do a workshop where people leave and they feel good at the end of it. Um, but but what gets us to that that really lasting change? That was the big question for us. And so we were experimenting with all these different ways of getting better feedback loops on what's happening with the people side of things. And we did all sorts of variations. We would go and we could um, have conversations with people afterwards. And so those were really poignant and meaningful. Um, but of course, they're anecdotes, so it's hard to know. Well, what is the the scope of this impact we're having? And then um, it takes more time because we have to go and we have to sit, and they have to be willing to give us the time. And then we were also trying variations on surveys of pre and post surveys, and what types of questions do you ask people? And anyway, long story short, somewhere along the way, um, I realized that this was a broader problem. So I was talking to uh, leader managers and team leads who also were trying to figure out how am I doing with my team. Um, I was talking to HR leaders who similarly really wanted a better sense of this. And ha- I had the insight that increasingly we're collaborating in digital spaces. So we're, we're using software tools where we're collaborating, you know, talking about the work, getting the work done. And so we could use those behavioral interactions to then see how is it going in the day-to-day and what's shifting or not shifting. Um, and... And, and yeah, and, and so that was the beginning of Multitudes was that, oh, actually, there's this easy way that we can start to get a feedback loop on how are we treating each other and then how does that feed into the way that the team's performing. Okay, great. We'll take a quick break and be back with Lauren Pete from Multitudes in a minute. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. And I'm Simon. And I'm Alice, and together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape, from the gourmet Ooh la la. to your more hearty taka. Kiwi onion dip, anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your other favourite podcasts. Cool. And what was the thing that had you jump from, you know, there's quite a few tools for developers to measure, you know, how many times they are, um, you you know, adding to the code base or how many times they're doing stuff on GitHub or how many, you know, of their cards they've finished or stories they've completed or whatever. So like the whole industry's got millions of these things to kind of track output. But what was your leap to kind of actually track kind of the quality of the um, of the interactions? Yeah, it's that, uh, how do I, I, I need an analogy for this. So we can overmanage on output, but, but there's all this stuff, if, you know, you could, if we think about it, there's all sorts of other things that are going into how we landed at that output that we got to. And so our strong assertion, and I can 
point to some research that backs this up is that actually what matters most for the output is how we're treating each other in the day to day. And so rather than trying to tweak issues or tickets or all these little small things on output, which actually by the time we're tweaking it, we've probably lost the chance to make a real big difference anyway. Let's look at the upstream stuff where it's around the kind of support that we're giving each other, the types of step-up opportunities that people are getting, um, how we're supporting people's well-being in the workplace. And all of those combined, those are the ingredients that make a great team. And I I think there's um, one thing that's worth calling out here, which is we, are, we have gone through this transition from a more manufacturing-based economy where... It was still humans doing lots of things in there, but there was also a degree to which it was widgets and they get combined and you get this output. Whereas now in the knowledge economy, it is much more about creativity and how we collaborate and how we innovate. And um, and so we need to be thinking about how are we creating environments that really support that for people. And the last thing I'll say on that, because it's such a compelling piece of research, is that the Project Aristotle research from Google looked at precisely this. So um, they had this observation that despite having a very high individual hiring bar, when they put those individuals on teams, the teams were performing at vastly different levels. And so they could see that there's something unique about the team side of things and how those groups of people come to that come together that can either be additive or subtractive. And when they looked at it, being Google, they spent two years looking at 200 teams and dived into all sorts of different factors. They found that the number one thing for team performance was psychological safety. So there's, and there's more I could point to, but that's such a great piece of research that shows if we Let's say all we care about is output, which, you know, hopefully we care about more than that. But even if the team performance is all we care about, we do need to look at the environment and how we treat each other um, in the day to day. That's such an interesting overlap with the work at Ally Skills and those ideas around um, culture as well, as there's such a strong picture in the the culture, which is wrong, you know, I've worked with lots of development teams, of developers as kind of loner individual contributors, you know, who put their hoodie on and thrash out a whole lot of code and, you know, do it themselves kind of thing, where Mm. the research and what you're, you're saying is that it's actually things like mentorship and sharing things and working together with other um, with other senior developers or with other people to solve the problems where you get to the better results. Yes. And one of my favorite quotes, and I don't know the source of this, I think it's one of those quotes that's become ubiquitous, is that PRs are a team sport. So so for people who aren't developers, PRs are pull requests, and it's, um, it's essentially a, a, a piece of work that a developer could do. And it doesn't get done today in, in an organization unless you have a whole team of people that are working behind it. Um, the other thing I want to challenge, which really feeds in with this old mentality, is that idea of um, coffee in, code out. There's mm. that that thing that people like to say about developers, and that really reduces people to machines. When actually, developers they are still people. <laughs> um, they're, they're they're people just like anyone else, and so all the other human stuff matters as well. Yeah, and again, those cultural settings, like you know, PRs are a team sport. Were, were our kids who are interested in computers told that they're team sport players, you know, like, and I know esports and things are changing things, but, you know, even these things about, um, you know, these, these, these cultures of, um, 
yeah, what what the culture tells people is the right way for them to act um, <laughs> is, is <Yeah>. so cooked. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And that certainly would feed the interest of people to get involved. If I mean, you know, for me, for example, I love working in a team. When a team's working well, it's my favorite thing in the world. Um, that's one of the things I love about working with my team now at Multitudes. And um so I, I would just have no interest in something where someone said, well, you're just going to be a loner and, you know, alone in a room doing this all the time. Um, whereas if someone said you're going to work on a team and you're going to have massive challenges and sometimes you're not going to be sure if you're going to be able to do it, but you all know that you have each other's back and you're going to give it your best. I mean, that that's exciting. That's something I want to be part of. And when you're trying to bring more people in to see that development where there's a huge skills shortage is a place for lots of people. If you say you don't have to be an individual contributor, coffee in, code out, you're part of a collaborative high-functioning team that supports people and works together, um, solves problems together, you don't need to have all the answers, you don't need to be the, the coding savant. Like All of these kind of themes in the culture keep people who don't feel like they are um, have, haven't been told their whole life you can do anything out, don't they? Yes, they do. And that's one of the things um, that we're trying to address with multitudes is so one of the issues with this focus on output is it really rewards it can it can reward self-serving behavior. So if you know you're going to be measured on output and you know that it's measured on this individual output level, the incentives are such that why would you not just say, well, I'm going to do my work. I'm going to ignore what everyone else is doing. And because that I'm that way, I maximize how much I get done. Whereas um, by saying, look, actually, we care about how people treat each other. We care about who's doing the support work. We care about who's taking the time to give reviews to other people. And we're going we're gonna to recognize that. We're going to acknowledge it and celebrate it. Then you, you're putting the incentives that match what the research says we need for the best team performance. But you're putting the incentives in place to say, we value this and we're going to see it and we're, we're going to appreciate it. And, and you've found that, haven't you, like quite counterintuitively with your first kind of users in that, you know, if they've got a small team with, you know, four senior developers and two junior, you actually move faster by taking one of the senior developers off thrashing out code all day and getting them to float and help everyone achieve more. So that that's kind of cool, hey? Yeah, yeah, that one, um, we wrote a case study about one of our first customers, Story Park, which is a great ed tech company, um, education technology company, um, where they saw, they saw this happen as an example. Um, so their senior developers, one of the things that can happen is um, that senior developers, there can be such a pressure for them to deliver work that there's um, not as much space and support for them to keep growing because, of course, they still want to be challenged and growing in their work. And so exactly like you said, counterintuitively, um, they saw in the multitudes data that their senior developers were spending a lot of time supporting others but weren't getting as much peer-level support. And so their CTO, Matthew, pulled out one of their developers, which was a hard case to make, pulled out one of their senior developers and put them in a float role to work with other seniors. And then within a month, they saw a doubling in the share of feedback that their seniors got from other seniors. And then within two months, they saw an increase in how quickly the work was getting done. So, and that's that's our, our assertion with multitudes. It's that the team behavior, this culture stuff, this is the leading indicator of what is going to be happening on the team performance side of things. So how, 
how do you do that with the with the software? Like, um, how do you manage to see how much people are talking with each other and you know how long they're waiting? Because you know the thing with development is like you know you you can't just finish something and chuck it up. It's got to go through a whole bunch of <laughs> processes. And if they aren't all working in nice um, tandem, then things are you, you know slow and, and lumpy and stuff. So yeah, how do you manage to 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 capture and see all of that? Yeah, so we've. Um, made it as easy as we can for people. The first integration that we have is with GitHub. Um, and what's great about that is it means that we can see both what's happening with the work. So what's the work that's getting done and, and what's the flow of it? Where is it getting blocked? Um, but we can also see, so that's on the, the process side of things. But then on the people side of things, we can also see the collaboration patterns. So who's getting support? Who's not getting support? Who's giving support? So that's kind of that glue and and um, support work that I mentioned before. Who are the people that are putting in the time to kind of lift, lift the boats of everyone on the team? Um, and then we also can look at things like, um, well-being indicators. So, for example, if people are regularly working really long days, we know that that's a leading indicator of potential burnout. And so we're also able to flag that for the teams that we're working with. And so this this idea and these early customers that you got on and kind of proved out it worked, how did you go about taking that to get the backing that you received from Blackbird VC, who are, you know, a huge uh, venture capital operation out of um, Australia, really well capitalised, really, really highly esteemed. And then some of the people on your cap table, you know, the, the ex-CEO of Reddit, the founder of Coltrail, and that's that's wild. What a, what a journey. How, how did that go? Yeah, um, lots of learning on the way. And the thing that I think it's important to mention is I'm really proud of of where of how the round went. I'm really proud of the investors we have on board. Um, I think we've brought in people who are values aligned and who really believe in us and where we're headed, um, which is all that any startup can ask for, really. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that there were lots of no's along the way. Um, so it's you know the, the headlines don't show kind of the the um, challenges and and all the times that it didn't work too. <laughs> and yeah, it is just kind of writing a whole lot of promises to some really um, you know intimidatingly awesome people as well, isn't it? It's kind of when the work yeah. when the yeah. when the work and the difficulty. So what stage yeah. is the company at, and what's next? Yeah, so we've been hard at work building out our beta product. Um, the alpha launched last year with our first customers. We raised the round of investment at the end of last year. And then this year, we've brought in some really early testers around the world to give us feedback on the beta product. Um, we've seen some great wins. And so now we're gearing up for our beta launch in September. So if anyone's interested, go check out our website and, and let us know you're, you're keen to um, try it out. Yeah, and how are you going in the hunt for, I mean, you know, the the funny thing with all of this stuff with developers is people work so hard to get developers in this environment, they're probably doubly uh, unsure about putting them into float roles and the like, but how are you going? Yeah, yeah. Um, you mean for, like for us as a team or yeah, yeah, for... Yeah, 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 for finding. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're, we're good. Um, we've been growing the team as well, so we are um, hiring now for a back-end developer, uh, <laughs> someone who knows TypeScript. So, yeah, um, also keen to chat to people who, are, who, are, who love what we're building and, and are interested in getting involved. Yeah, Joyce. And as a, as a last couple of questions that we, we asked, like, yeah, what would... Um, what will success be for you, and also what would success be for multitudes for you? Um, you know, at this stage in your in your journey. 
Yeah, I'll start with the multitude success and then I'll end with the success for for Lauren. Um, So the multitude success, we see this in, in two areas. The first is the startup success piece of it. So we want to build a product that's valuable, that's meaningful for our customers and that does well financially. Um, That's that side of things. Then the second piece for us is around the type of company that we're building. So for our vision is to make equity the default at work because we know that that it's not only better workplaces, it's it's better team performance, it's better outcomes for all of us. And so um, we really take that to heart and we want to make sure that we're practicing what we preach and, and build our own company that is living up to that. So that's success for, for us um, and for multitudes. And then success for me, I mean, <laughs> there's so much of it, to be honest, that I'm, I'm living now and, and really appreciate. So I'm, I mean it when I say that my favorite thing is working with a, a really talented, motivated group of people who are going after big goals and, and where we know we've got each other's backs. And I have that with multitudes. I mean, I'm, you know, we have such an amazing team. Um, I really love going into work with these people. Um, and I really feel like if any group of people could, could make our big goals happen, it's this one. Um, so one of the big things for me now is just appreciating and celebrating that I get to do this. Um, and the bigger success for me is really, what have I contributed to the world? Um, you know, there's the, the questions of at the end of your life, what do you want to be able to look back and say? And I do want to be able to say that I've contributed to, to making the world a more equitable place. Um, it's a big goal, and and I know that you know I as one person would only ever have a very small part of it. Unfortunately, there's lots of people who are working towards that goal. Uh, but yeah, that's that's really the big why for me. Ah, that's magic. Well, thank you for sharing the story today, and can't wait to see where you take it. That's uh, Lauren Pitt, who's the co-founder, the founder and CEO at uh, at Multitudes. Kelda, thank you for sharing your story. Yada. Thanks so much, Simon. Thank you very much to Tehei Butler for producing and thank you very much for having us along in your ears and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound, brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.